Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What sorts of things did this campaign make you think about in your life? For me, it's time. I had a very late start in building for my own financial security. And as I reflected on my own realizations, right, I, I realized that I wasn't as financially ahead as I should have been had I thought about doing this 20 years ago. So this consider this a PSA for anyone who's listening right now who hasn't had the help that they needed. If I could turn back the clock, I would live my life differently. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO Podcast is Lynn Teo, Chief Marketing Officer for Northwestern Mutual, one of the perennially most admired companies in the world. Northwestern Mutual, or NM, is also one of the oldest companies in the world, founded 165 years ago, and today is a growing $35 billion company. Its purpose is to free people from financial anxiety, and its products and services include life insurance, disability income, and long-term care insurance, and a range of other financial planning services. My guest, Lynn, has an unorthodox background for a CMO. She earned her bachelor's at the National University of Singapore, specializing in English language, linguistics, and geography, and then earned her master's at Carnegie Mellon in professional and technical writing and interaction design. She has worked at a host of companies on both the client and agency side, including AKQA and McCann on the agency side, and Thomson Reuters, CA Technologies, and Walters Kluwer on the client side. Lynn has been at Northwestern Mutual about one year. This is my conversation with the CMO who loves to hike in national parks. Here's Lynn Teo. Lynn, welcome to the CMO podcast. We have to thank Tim Jaron for bringing us together. Tim is, of course, a colleague of yours. And I met him at a conference a few months ago, and he said that we must get together, that we must meet. You must be a guest on the podcast. So here we are. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jim. Well, what I did tell Tim was that I was already a listener to your podcast. So it's a little bit of a fangirl moment for me when he said that he was going to get us connected. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, I think there's a lesson in all of this. You know, it's important to keep meeting people outside your normal circles. And the meeting I met Tim at was not my tribe. It was a different kind of meeting. And we had a fabulous discussion over a cocktail the night before the meeting. We really hit it off, and he said, oh, you must meet. But I I know a belief of yours from my research is to spend an enormous time, amount of time out of the office and with people closest to your clients, 
which in your case are your financial advisors. So I'd like to, I'd like to start our conversation with that. You're a year into the job. You spent most of your time in the field when you started. So I'd like you to speak about what your thinking was there. Why is that such a strong belief of yours? How did it help you get off to a fast start as CMO of this, this amazing legacy company? So let's start there. Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is being a part of a 165-year institution is phenomenal in and of itself, right? There are very few things in life that have that length of time in, ter in terms of its, you know, enduring qualities. So um, I took that process of, you know, uh, learning about the business and onboarding extremely seriously because there's so much history here to understand. Um, if you took a look at my calendar for my first 90 days, you will see that about 75% of my time was spent in the field, talking to our distribution, learning the elements of what makes this system hum, understanding how money is made, foundationally, but also appreciating the unique culture that is Northwestern Mutual. And I say that with an irreverence. I say that with deep honor because the quality of people that I have met, both at the home office, that's what we call ourselves. We're not quite corporate HQ, we're home office. It's better, it's homier. Yeah, definitely more intimate. And the field, it's a remarkable synergy that I've observed. And that consistency and, and that culture is remarkable. They're not our employees. We've got 9,000 financial advisors spread across all of the US. They're not our employees. So to keep that level of consistency in, in our culture is remarkable. And to see how both the field and home office comes together to co-create in the most authentic way is again, remarkable to see. I've been in many different companies in my career. And you know when you see something different, you pick up on that right away. Yeah. Were there any any big surprises in those first 90 days versus what you expected coming in? Yeah, I think you expect a financial services firm to be extremely formal, to lack maybe a little bit of that human component. And I've, I found that that is the complete opposite. People truly care about each other. And it is from that basis of caring that we do the work of helping to remove financial anxiety from people's lives, right? So the people that we attract, um, who we are with each other in our day-to-day -day interactions, extremely collaborative, we believe truly in co-creation, all of those things come to bear. So that's been one of the most, I think, delightful uh, discoveries of having been part of this amazing brand and amazing institution. Well, how smart of you to spend 90 days, most of that time outside. I'd like you to talk a bit about how that helped set your agenda for your role, because obviously the role of CMO is a dynamic one. It's different in almost every institution. Uh, I also believe that if you get out and you talk to the important stakeholders for your first few months, your agenda becomes very clear of where you can add the most value, what are the pain points, what are the opportunities? So could you speak to a bit, you're a year into the job, yes. as you said, how did that help you set your agenda for the function? I think it helped me set every aspect of my agenda. I knew when I took on the role that it was the complexity of the role that attracted me to it. 
A B2B to C business is very different from a B2B alone or a B2C alone. And I really needed to understand, you know, what do consumers need to hear from the brand that would challenge them to think about their financial lives differently, that would satisfy uh, their need for show me what you're doing that's different than anyone else in financial services because the default sentiment is distrust. So that yeah. was important for me to understand. And then it was also the ability to understand we don't sell, we don't sell B to C, we don't sell D to C. And so the only way in which any consumer can buy a product is through that human. And so understanding, you know, what it meant uh, to have a distribution that is exclusive, but not captive. Truly understand, you know, the business, um, I guess the competitive and the business differentiators was critical for me in understanding that. And then understanding our legacy, right? So marketing's been undergoing transformation at Northwestern Mutual even before I arrived. I, I stand on the shoulders of the CMOs who came before me. And one of the CMOs is Aditi, who is currently, you know, a um, a phenom phenomenal leader at Northwestern Mutual, and um, she's now doing bigger, better things at MM. But she started her career taking on a CMO role, and I I take my hat off to her because she created this discipline of measurement, acknowledging that digital leads are part of the process of generating business. So I think acknowledging your legacy of what other CMOs have done before you and building on that is critical. The other, I think, interesting element is Tim Guerin's organization. I'm part of the distribution team. And I think it was a very deliberate move for the enterprise to place the position of a CMO in its new iteration, uh, in, in the new remit of marketing, to be so closely tied to the distribution because the distribution is the last mile for NM. So again, you know, through those references of those leaders, um, you can tell that the vision of marketing could not come to light without an acknowledgement of how we would create leads in the past and how we now need to evolve that. So that's part of, part of the process of that combined effort of the field working in tandem with direct to consumer and if I, I could also talk about the client experience capabilities that we bring to the table. So we have digital capabilities, digital products that we've now built that allow for that enhanced relationship to be built and developed between a human enhanced by the digital products and bringing to bear the sense of empowerment for the consumer. So there is no way I could have articulated my marketing strategy without deeply understanding all of those assets and prior initiatives that have taken place. And so my remit is to drive a vision of marketing that's a growth driver that leverages, you know, all that's been done at the enterprise before I came here. What have you learned with your team in your first year about the most important capabilities that you either have to double down on that are already strong right. at NM or ones that for this new world we're all in with AI and everything else that we're talking about every day, what are the capabilities that you need to build for the future so that you can continue to be as successful as this great organization has been? Yes. Um, the capacity for change. 
the willingness to transform. Um, I think that for me is one of the biggest skill set developments I think any organization needs to have, right? To be um, relevant, to continue to be relevant. Um, in marketing, for example, we all know marketing has changed. I mean, Jim, from the time that you were at Procter & Gamble, Lauren and I were just talking about how Procter & Gamble represents the gold standard of marketing. And so many elements of that are still true. They haven't gone away with the advent of digital marketing. Mm -hmm. But I think the challenge by any marketer is how do you keep a pace with different chapters of marketing that get written up? And so I go back to capacity for change and ability to transform as being one of the long-lasting recipes of how a marketer stays relevant. So that's a skill set. Transformation, agility, ability to question what we're doing in the spirit of becoming better at what we do. So that's skills that I'm trying to push my team to be more comfortable with and to embrace it. What I think they have continued to do very well, which I'm very proud of, is they've established this longstanding collaboration and connectivity with the rest of the enterprise, uh, be it PR and comms, our product teams, our financial advisors, and those will remain true and remain critical ingredients of how we function. So those would be the two areas, one you need to dial up and one you need to continue. Yeah, that, that ability to build relationships with uh, colleagues, right, across functions, across regions, whatever your business model is, is so important. You know, I just came out of the Cannes Festival a couple weeks ago, and I just heard that over and over again. The great CMOs and the great marketing departments are fabulous at building relationships across the enterprise, of course, outside the enterprise as well. And that's, you know, easier said than done, right? Yes. And so you have to be curious. You have to care about what other people care about. You have to understand everyone's motivations and their KPIs. So I'd like you to go a little bit deeper in, it's already a strength at, at NM, how do you keep that strong? How do you keep that kind of culture? What sort of things do you reinforce as leaders? Right. So speak, speak a bit about that for us, Lynn. I think it's always, I believe in always maintaining a healthy balance, right? As we look to teams to accelerate the speed of what they do, you have to keep the collaboration in balance with decisions that you need to drive, right? So there is a risk, and I don't mean this in, in a negative way, but there is a risk of over-collaboration, if mm -hmm. you will. Uh, when you need 30, 30 people in a room to come to some decision, right? And I think the key is how do you keep what we call the consult in a racy? Yeah. Broad, right? So you're, you're putting word out so that people are aware of what you're working on, uh, why the perspectives are valued, but you have very clear uh, people in the in the responsibility role to drive something. So there's accountability. I think that's important. And so how do you acknowledge the uh, collaboration and, uh, and consensus building to a point that you need, but because of the speed and agility that you're trying to drive as well, how do you accelerate that? Because we all know businesses are moving at at lightning speed now. And you know, a first mover always has an unfair advantage. So how do I strike that balance? I think that's that's the key. Yeah, I agree. We've all been there. 
You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. Now, I have to disclose before we get too much further that my wife and I have been long-term clients of Northwestern Mutual. In fact, I was looking back at our records. We became clients when our daughter was born, and she's getting married this fall, so that's a long time ago. And and a reason we did, of course, is reputation. Yes. And it's your people, but it's also your purpose, yes. right? which I think you've been consistent on. You may articulate in different ways over the decades, but you've been consistent on that. And you already mentioned that in our conversation about freeing others from financial anxiety because financial anxiety is a driver of so many bad things. Yes. You know, lifestyle, health, career, everything. So could you talk a bit about how you differentiate that on that purpose? Because there are others who say similar things. And when people ask me if their purpose is too generic in their category, uh, that others are have similar kind of missions or purpose, I say, listen, as long as you activate it better, more consistently over time, more creatively, with more impact, with more relevance, you will have a differentiated brand and firm. You do that very well. So what could others learn from how you differentiate on that wonderful purpose you have? Well, first of all, uh, Jim, I wanted to say thank you to you and your wife for being policyholders. We take a lot of pride that you're still with us after all those years. And we've added new products and services as our lives changed. And I started a new business. Yeah. And my extended family are policyholders. So it uh, that's the word of mouth working, right? That's exactly right, right. So I think your longevity with us is testament. But I do think that as a brand, we constantly have to question our value to our policyholders. And I think outcomes is going to be at the end of the day, you know, that's what we promise to deliver, right? We we don't promise a return in terms of a hot percentage return, but what we do is we promise the pathway to achieving their goals in a manner that is at the right level of risk-taking to give you the right level of outcomes. And that's going to be different for everyone, right? As a mm -hmm. function of your timelines, as a function of your family situation. But I think the key to it is there is a hard science behind what we do. And we train our financial advisors, we invest in them to give them the competencies that make them great at what they do. So it, I think your question about what are our competitive differentiators is a, is a good one. Because I wake up every day reminding myself that I have to earn that that credibility. I have to earn that trust. And I need to constantly understand what are the barriers standing in the way of a consumer who isn't quite sure whether we're right for them. So I think um, you know, being able to demonstrate outcomes is going to be critical. 
But I would also say the financial stability that we have as a brand is critical, right? You would only work with a financial services company if you know that your money isn't going to be lost years down the road and that you're getting a decent return. Um, and very few people know this, Jim, but um, you know, according to Moody's rating, Northwestern Mutual is one of five global brands that have been given that stamp of approval on our financial stability. And I'd be curious if, you know, you would hazard a guess what the other four brands are. Uh, do you want to give that a shot? P&G is likely one of them. Uh, no? I'm afraid no. not. Oh, okay. Oh, gosh. Uh, that's a good quiz. The, uh, the other ones? Uh, wow. Johnson & Johnson? Bingo. You got, yeah. you got that right. Got one. Yeah. Yeah. JP Morgan? Close. No? Close? Tech firm. Think of a tech firm. Oh, uh, Microsoft? Yes. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, you've got, I mean, you did remarkably well, but you've got Johnson <laughs> & Johnson, yeah. Apple, Microsoft, Apple. Yeah. New York Life, and Northwestern Mutual. Those are that's the only company. brands. That's great company. And I, I, I think that for me is, is, a, is a difference maker because I remember when I was being recruited, that was um, a fact in the little fat pack. And th that made me look at Northwestern Mutual in a whole new light. That's a great company. And I think no company is in that list if they weren't doing something right. Yeah. How do, how do, you, how do you keep the purpose alive with your teams, your financial advisors, your business model? As you say, you go through the 9,000 advisors. If they're not walking the talk, yes. right, the purpose will not come to life. So how do you keep it? at the front and center of what everyone does every day and to know that's why we're here. That's how we're different. And it's all about our behaviors. Yes. So you have this amazing firm. We just talked about you're one of five with this rating for Moody's. Yeah. How do you keep that purpose front and center day in and day out? Yeah. I think it starts right at the beginning, right from the time we go out there and we talk to interns in college. To help them understand, you know, why is this career something you should consider and why Northwestern Mutual is a company that you're best positioned to do this with. In my first 90 days, I actually spent time in our Atlanta network office and with the managing partner and sat in on some of these in-depth interviews that they go through to find out if a prospective candidate is the right uh, person for the job, right? And it's a, you know, it's a pretty um, involved process trying to understand what motivates them, what subjects did they do well in school. It's a pretty well-rounded process, but what's key in that is to identify if there is a commonality or something that would make them, um, you know, what is their driver? The driver has to be, they want to help someone get to a different a level in their lives, or they believe it is their personal mission to unlock an individual's purpose. So you've got that multi-tiered, purpose-driven mm -hmm. ethos from the very beginning, right? And then when you recruit them, that is a pretty um, involved process of getting them onboarded. Um, there is this mentoring uh, program that the young financial advisors are being put in a program, they're being nurtured. So at every step of the way, right, kind of you're, you're building the culture 
but you're already you're, you're also unlocking what's already originally in that candidate. And I we bring our field to home office. Our annual meeting is coming up in a couple of days. It's a pivotal annual meeting where all of our financial advisors descend in, in Milwaukee and downtown. And we have 20,000 people running around in Milwaukee, but that's a pretty pivotal point in, in our annual calendar because it's when the field, they bring their teams, they interact with home office. So that purpose, I think, informs you know, every moment in our in our calendar from time of inception all the way through to um, as they grow their careers at NM. And that co-creation and that wonderful community that's built across the field and home office. What are you looking forward to at this big meeting? We, we had the same ritual at P&G. It was always in the fall and early November. Everyone came in from around the world. And I love that week for so many reasons. What are you most looking forward to in this giant 20,000 person meeting in a few days? I'm looking forward to serendipitous, uh, serendipitous mm -hmm. moments, you know, where you're meeting someone and they have this fantastic story about how they stumbled upon the career of being a financial advisor. Uh, they're telling you pretty much what, what's keeping them up at night or they're giving you some interesting ideas about how, you know, we should be marketing to them. And you're doing that almost in an accelerated fashion because you're literally not sleeping too much in four days and you're networking and getting to know people. So uh, serendipitous connections is what I'm looking forward to. I love that. Now, when you started about a year ago, you were, if I have my, if I have my timeline right, you were walking into this company as your team was launching a new campaign. That's right. The Great Realization and activating some really interesting partnerships with, with Gretchen Rubin, with Pinterest, et cetera. Yeah. So what was it like walking into a firm just as it's launching a highly visible, very interesting, very insight-rich campaign? What was that like? How did you think about it? How did you get on board with it? And because at the end of the day, you'll have to be accountable for it, right? That's right. That's right. Well, I had a preview of the campaign before that, right? So I, I had a sense of what was to come. And there was there were so many things about that campaign that resonated with me on a very personal level. I think mm -hmm. we've all lived through the pandemic and all recalibrated our lives. And I think my immediate reaction was how emotionally resonant that brand message was, how appropriately timed it was, but also how inspiring it was, right? So I think for anyone new, the only time you would pump the brakes on anything, if you felt that it was just fundamentally wrong mm -hmm. and there were no signs of that, right? So I think... I take that moment as a learning moment. It's part and parcel of the onboarding. That's the way I kind of, I thought about yeah. it. And it kind of gave me a way to think about the other campaigns that were coming down the pike. So we had that Pinterest campaign that was initially slated for the end of the year. And that gave me a moment to maybe pause that a little bit to say, what else can, could we do that would help us get more out of it. And so it gave me a way to also work with my teams very directly within my first 90 days and be able to tee that up for the spring in a manner that I felt would give us more. So it's the best of both worlds. You know, you kind of absorb what you're stepping into and then you take a little bit of time to say, how can I make this better for something that 
isn't yet ready to hit the market, but maybe if I pump the brakes there, we could get more impact out of it. So that that was the best way I could kind of figure out how to navigate mm-hmm. and how to add value. I remember when I first saw the campaign, it is, I mean, you work with some amazing talent yes. as you put that together. The videos are pretty extraordinary. It made me think about, you know, realizations in my life. It, it's hard not to. Yes. And so you already brought it up. I'd like you to go there. What about your great realizations, if we could go there, what sorts of things did this campaign make you think about in your life that were great realizations? For me, it's time. It's time, right? Like I I wake up every day and I push hard. I've been doing this for 25 years. And it really made me pause to think about what do I want to do for the next 20 years of my life. And how do I tee myself up financially to, to be there? Right. So in many ways, I'm also a consumer because and I'm, I'm happy to share this with, with anyone, but I had a very late start in building for my own financial security because of my family background, you know, how I was brought up, brought up by traditional Asian parents who didn't quite believe in investing through either, you know, uh, false perceptions or just this belief that it would whittle away what you worked so hard, you know, to, to, to achieve and you're kind of gambling away with no sense of certainty. So, but that was my reality. And as I reflected on my own realizations, right, I, I realized that I wasn't as financially ahead as I should have been had I thought about doing this 20 years ago. So this consider this a PSA for anyone who's listening right now who hasn't had the help that they needed, if I could turn back the clock, I would live my life differently. But that certainly was a realization. So in order for me to, you know, not feel completely tethered to my my professional career, what would that look like? For me, it's travel. It's the ability to um, learn more about different cultures. That, That gives me tremendous joy. Not that my current profession doesn't, but that's joy on a whole other level. To be able to write about it at some point in you know in the future, so that certainly gave me that point of realization about how am I preparing for myself financially to be able to do that. So that was my personal realization. It's a big one. It's a it's a heavy one. What did you do when you had that realization? I mean, you, you, in a sense, you wanted to catch up, right, so that you could have the the freedom from anxiety as you go through your life to do things that you love and have the the freedom to do that. Yes. So what what did you do to continue the PSA, if you will? How, how, what kind of decisions did you make to catch up? Well, I started to think about what my life would be like in terms of, you know, how do I need to be paid when I actually mm-hmm. do not have a job, right? And then I started educating myself through conversations with financial advisors about different products like annuities or, you know, what could you do to supplement social security, right? So I'm kind of knee deep in that process of trying to figure out what's right for me in my family construct, right? In my personal life. You know, if you have five children that you've put through college, you have a very different life scenario, right? Than if you don't. And so I'm in that process of being very reflective about what do I need to live comfortably? What mm-hmm. does, does that life look like? And what are the various instruments and it might feel as if I'm getting a little technical here. No, not at all. But I used the word instrument, you know, very deliberately because 
there are ways for you to get from place A to place B that I feel the world needs to be educated on of, of how you're going to get to that place, right? And for me, I wish I didn't lose the time, but I, I still think that it's never too late to get the right guidance. It, it begins with, though, your life goals, right? Which I loved. You went there right away. And certainly the financial advisors that have been you know, most uh, profound in our lives have started there. And that never, and that conversation never ends. That's right. That's right. And that's, that's, it's, it's dynamic, which is what's exciting. But the, the, the lesson is to take time to reflect, to think about your life goals, start there. What kind of life do you want to create with whom you want to create it with? And, and how do you make, how do you achieve that? And there are lots of great people to help with that. And you have many of them in your company. That's exactly right. Start the conversation yep. and, you know, kind of build on that plan. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Now you have a most interesting career path, right? And I want to go back all the way to your education. You had a bachelor's with honors from the National University of Singapore, and then a master's in professional technical writing and interaction design from Carnegie Mellon. You know, I'm not sure I've had a CMO on the show who has that kind of master's. So I, I want to talk about what motivated you back then yeah. when you were younger to pursue this master's in professional technical writing? What was your what was your dream then? What was your motivation? Well, to put it simply, it was a young girl or young woman with the dreams. Grew up in Singapore, tiny little dot on a map, and just had big dreams. I remember my very first trip to the U.S., I was very fortunate. I was in a program where all of my teachers were expats. I had Americans and Brits. And it was a special program uh, that was set up for uh, students of math and science to pursue the arts. Wow. So that was an interesting kind of entry into the world of marketing. I did not know then that I would land in marketing, but I knew that I was a student who excelled in math and science but felt there was so much richness in the arts for me to pursue. And so uh, Singapore back then being much more conservative and it kind of elevated math and science, it, it did create a program that allowed us to cross over. And, and we had these wonderful teachers brought in from the US and the UK. And we went on a, on a field trip to the US. And this is me at age 17, never been on a plane, you know, and never been outside of Singapore. The first thing I see is the Grand Canyon and wow. San Francisco and Las Vegas. That was pretty huge. And I, I knew then when that moment struck, I knew that you couldn't contain this young woman. <laughs> I, I set my sights on pursuing my education outside of um, Singapore. And I was deemed too young to do it when I was in college. Uh, but as soon as I was able to, you know, have an opportunity to do grad school, um, the U.S. was definitely on on that roadmap. 
And so how did I wind up in the program at Carnegie Mellon? Great question. I remember being extremely attuned to the web back in mm-hmm. the mid-90s and spending a ton of time on it and just instinctively knowing and feeling like that was going to change the world. It was back in the days of you. Do did. A, you remember those days, right? Oh, yeah, Alpha I sure Vista, do. Yahoo in its early days. And I just knew that that was a world that I wanted to be in. And so I looked at some interesting, innovative programs in the U.S. And the program at Carnegie Mellon actually stood out. It's always been known to be a trade school um, that you would mm-hmm. be honing hard skills. And it was also the marriage of the arts and the science. And so that was my, my start which led me to my first job as a uh, usability engineer at Bell Communications Research, part of Bell Labs. That was just phenomenal. But if you asked me back then if I would land in marketing, I would say, I don't think so. So the first city you lived in in the U.S. was Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What was your reaction to that? I loved it. It is not the dirty mining town that everyone says it is. You know, it's at the confluence of three rivers, uh, and the Carnegie Mellon campus is phenomenal. So it was an intense 18 months in that program. But I remember doing my internship in New York, and uh, that was when I knew I was going to land my first gig around here. Mm -hmm. What was your first reaction to the States when you were 17 and you came over for that? sounded like it was almost a tourism, a nature tour. You were in Vegas and Grand Canyon. Right. What was your first reaction? It was just mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing to see the scale of the landscape, to see just how big and extensive everything was. I mean, I I came from a little city state where it took 50 minutes to drive from the west side to the east (laughs) side. That was it. Um, And then I think for me, being in New York really blew my mind. Uh, The diversity made me instantly comfortable. Uh, but also the fact that you meet some pretty interesting people here, as you will attest. I think people are drawn to New York if they want to be challenged, if they want to be among the best. And there was just something about the city, the energy of the city that matched my personality. So it was a very natural draw. You spent a considerable amount of time in your career on the agency side. You were yeah. Sapient, I believe, and AKQA, McCann Worldwide. Yeah, Do you ever miss being on that side? Um, I don't because I feel like I'm I'm at a different phase of my career. Mm-hmm. But I do think that I wouldn't have honed my skills as well as I did if I didn't have those agency uh, experiences. Because you're working on so many things all at the same time, and you're being thrown different industries, different problems to solve. And I think that's what has helped me as I've kind of grown my career in different industries. Of all the roles you've had in your career, Lynn, which has been, other than the one you're in right now, which has been the most rewarding? I would say my time at Sapient. I was there for almost five years. It's a unique culture. And I was at Sapient um, in its days of accelerator growth. When I joined, it was 3,000 people. When I left, it was 10,000. And I go back to culture and I go back to purpose because it, it was one of the reasons why I was so enamored with the Sapient brand as an employer. We were about unlocking the capability, enabling human potential. I still remember that phrase. It's one of six values 
how do you how do you enable human potential? And again, like that resonated with me because it it's it's a value that I hold pretty dearly. It's how do I unlock the special skills that everyone has and being able to do it under the umbrella of sapient was special. And then while at the same time, being given the challenge of helping clients solve difficult problems. So sapient is, a, is was a very special place. Um, and a, a lot of my colleagues and friends, um, I remember when I flipped the switch on my LinkedIn profile and, and flipped it to CMO, the most number of congratulations and and inbound notes I get, mm. I got were from my friends at Sapien. That says a lot. Yeah, it sure does. If I asked the question a different way, which role was the most stretching for you? Would you still answer it that way with Sapien? You know what? I think stretching has a different lens. Mm-hmm. I would say my role at McCann stretched me the most because I was your most atypical. I guess, executive to land at McCann because I didn't grow up in traditional advertising. And so it was a stretch because one, I had to really understand how to leverage traditional brand building and storytelling in a manner that I hadn't seen done the way I think McCann does it uh, when I was on the on the digital agency side. So it's a stretch because you're out of your comfort zone, mm-hmm. but you're still expected to make connections and to orchestrate. And so I was helping to push the point of view that building brand is also about delivering the experience. It's not the marketing communications per se, but it's embodying it, whether it's in your digital products, when you interact online, the experience is the brand. So how do I bring that to bear? So I felt like that was the best challenging stretch role for me. What boss or mentor has been most influential for you along the way? Good question. And I go back to my sapient days Mm -hmm. just because I was so young in my career. Her name is Debbie Newman. And I've mentioned this several times, but Debbie Newman was my career manager at sapient. And back in the day, there was a distinction between your direct reporting line manager who did your performance reviews and your career manager. Mm. And Debbie and I still meet for coffee. We still meet for lunch today, uh, you know, now. Um, And it's 20, almost 20 years in into that relationship. And she's the first to applaud, to congratulate, to to, uh, cheer me on. And that can only come from a place of when someone's been there and has realized something that you can offer that you didn't think you had. And so that for me represents um, why Debbie is so special to me. What's she doing now? She is actually at an agency still, and I believe okay. she is um, one of three uh, senior executives in that agency. Hmm. You know, But she's picked a path that allows her to balance work and life sure. better because she has kids yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. You have two pretty strong marketing beliefs that I found in my research. And the first one, and I'm just going to sort of quote you on this or maybe paraphrase you, marketing must fit into the construct of the business model. Yeah. What exactly do you mean by that? So take, for example, how I approach my onboarding at Northwestern Mutual. Before I can even think about what's the next campaign that I'm going to launch, I need to understand how does the company make money? What are the routes to market? What are the different channels in which I'm going to generate that interest? 
And so the business model is foundational in understanding how marketing can then deliver against the enterprise goals. I would, I would encourage everyone, every marketing leader to start there. What would be your tips to other leaders to do that as you just, as you just talked about? You know, yeah. you, this was a clear objective of yours in your first 90 days and probably is still a clear objective of yours. How could others learn from how you approach that? Because I agree with this marketing belief. I think this is, this is how marketing becomes important in a company. A lot of people say, we don't have a seat at the table. Well, there may be a reason why you don't have a seat at the table. Yes, that's a hard fact to uh, accept, right? It probably means you haven't asked enough right questions. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I would say is figure out who your stakeholders are, right? And stakeholders could be GMs of lines of businesses. Mm -hmm. um, your stakeholders could be product leaders, uh, functional leaders, and you know, really take the time to understand where the intersections of marketing are. Yeah. I think that's a good place to start. And then I would, as a fast follow, I would ask what KPIs would they hold up as either their department KPIs and maybe how those ladder up to an enterprise mm -hmm. KPI. So you have to start there because if you don't start there, you don't really know where marketing is going to play. Your, the second belief, I know you have more than two, but these two, two I found especially interesting. Push marketing is no longer effective. Marketing is about bringing people into a dialogue. Yeah. I love that thought. And But I want to ask you, how do you ensure when you do that, that your marketing is also effective in growing your business and your brand equity? Right. Right. Well, I would say that if they're willing to engage with you in a dialogue, that's an excellent sign, right? Because it means they've heard something that they identify with, that mm -hmm. resonates with them, and they're leaning in. And if they're leaning in, you have, in essence, earned your right to either to tell them more or to expand on a, on a scenario. And so I see that willingness to engage as being uh, an amazing indicator of genuine interest, right? And then you kind of have to follow through and make sure that you're not squandering that mm -hmm. interest. I would be very specific about, I, I talk about the consideration phase of a marketing funnel as where I believe a lot of marketers are missing the opportunity. As I started to look at our funnel at Northwestern Mutual, I saw a ton of investments at the top of funnel. Mm -hmm and a ton of investments at the very bottom of the funnel, right? But here's the thing, that middle is where it matters the most, right? And that middle is when you have a limited amount of time to demonstrate your brand will deliver value above and beyond your competition. You have to demonstrate that you connect with the problem that the consumer is looking to solve. And, and then what we're doing is we're doing deep slices of the segment for not just um, the chronological demographics, but we're looking at uh, motivations. Like what are the anxieties of people at different phases of their lives if they're at a household income of 100K and up or 100K and down? Mm -hmm. so we look at the addressable market because we want to be sure that if we're swinging the bat, that we have the maximum chance of that effort having the impact on the most number of people. 
you know, those are areas that I, I think we, we really have to take seriously as, as marketers. So the push is, the push marketing is valid to a point because you need to win their attention, but it soon turns into the power of pull marketing because it's where trust building happens. It's where they know you're solving for a problem and you have demonstrated in no uncertain terms that you are the better brand than the 10 other out mm-hmm. there. That's a pretty tall order for a marketer to deliver on, and it ultimately has to result in a sale. Yeah, that's a great thought, man. I mean, yes, a top of the funnel is we love a lot of that stuff because it's the ad campaigns and it's the big events we do and so on and so forth. But in the consideration, I love that. That's when people are starting to say, hmm, well, maybe. And you have to show up then in a way that, you know, excites them, uh, gets them more interested, moves them into the lower funnel. So I I think you're right. We don't think enough about that consideration part and how we show up because how we show up will say everything about who we are. That's right. And that middle funnel is also where marketing teams could be working better, right? And that's where the ball sometimes gets dropped or the baton passes aren't as clean. It was, I think about what I'm getting my, my marketers to further develop their skills in, it's in that planning. All right, so we've got a campaign now that we're putting out there. We have to think five steps ahead about all the other touches that we need to plan for. The last thing we want to do is drive, you know, kind of paid media and to a page where you're just not converting, mm-hmm. but but the time passes and seamless. So I think that's an area for marketers to really sharpen their skills because then you get that throughput on on the marketing and sales funnel. So it's it's exciting work. Can tell that that's that's what keeps me energized with my teams. I can tell. I can tell. Now let's move to the creator brief. And the first one, you've already mentioned how much you love travel and how you want to plan your life so that you have you have the ability to do that. And I know you love to hike and you love to hike in the national parks. So which are your top two or three national parks that you love to hike in? Arches National Park in Moab. That's mm-hmm. my all-time favorite. Have been there six times. Wow. Best time to go is during desert bloom, like the deserts are in bloom in April and May. Uh, but it is my sanctuary. Wow. Why do you like to hike so much? What is it about hiking? I love that question. Hiking is also problem solving. There is this trail, and I encourage everyone to go on it. It's called the Devil's Garden Trail in Arches National Park. It's about seven or eight miles, and it takes you. It's a pretty strenuous hike because at parts of the hike, you have to figure out how how am I going to get from there to there? How am I going to work my way through? Uh, Maybe it is a physical manifestation of what drives me in life in general, right? I have a problem. How am I going to get myself there? That's one. And then I would say the second one is just forcing myself to be in nature, uh, to be completely disconnected from phones and computers, and to just revel in the moment of the beauty that's around me. That keeps me centered all the time. And I used to be good about going on a big national park trip every quarter. That's fallen away a little bit since I've joined NM, but I, I think I need to pick that one up again. What's your next trip? My next trip is coming up. In two weeks, it's uh, Europe, south oh. of France, north of Spain, the United Kingdom. Hiking? 
uh, no, not hiking, no, but not hiking. just being out being there, there and being joy. there. Yeah. Good for you. What do you believe is your superpower? Like what is extra special about you? And then the other side of that question, what are you working on? All right. I think my superpower power is being a systems thinker. I see connections between things. And I love this notion of uh, the cumulative impact of something if it's brought together in the right way. Yeah, I think there are synergies that I love seeing. It's called, I guess some people say it's pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. How do you bring things together? And uh, it's no accident that that's what I'm working on right now as I look at re-engineering the people and process side of marketing. I've spent the last four or five months deeply entrenched with my team in figuring out how do we create this repeatable, lightweight, business-grounded process of delivering marketing that allows us to multiply our impact, right? So, you know, you kind of have to change all aspects of the marketing department, right? The capabilities, how people work in order to get us to that transformed view of how marketing contributes. You have to tackle all aspects mm-hmm. of it. So I'm kind of knee deep in that, but also very excited about campaigns that we have lined up for the fall, for the second half of this year, that will manifest some of the new ways of working that we've put in place. Uh, so I'm excited for the second half. And you know, I think that coming back from three weeks away in Europe is going to help me look at things with fresh eyes. What are you working on? What's a skill or a characteristic or a habit that you're working on? For me, it's all about growth and how do I balance delivering hard-hitting feedback while combining that with the growth and development that I want to still uh, nurture in my team, right? Because there is a risk when you dance around something when you're delivering feedback, that your team isn't hearing it. But at the same time, you have to straddle that balance where the team member understands what you're saying, but they still feel this sense of, you know, support and encouragement, right? So I'm I'm working on how do I make sure I land at the right place on that spectrum? Because ultimately, I'm responsible for the results of the team, and I, I need to bring the best out of everyone. And so that's what I'm working on as a leader. I love that. What's the first brand you remember way back in Singapore as a young girl? What's the first brand you remember that made an impact on you? McDonald's. Oh, okay. We hear that when we hear that and Coke and Nike a lot. It's interesting, those three. That's right. And I actually listened to the Morgan Flatney interview that yeah, yeah. because I was fascinated. But I say McDonald's because it just goes to show how much of an international reach um, that had. But I think for me, there's also an emotional side that's tied to it. My mother used to bring me and my brother to McDonald's during the school holidays in June, and we would be able to order the Happy Meal. And it was just the thing that we looked forward to. My mother was a teacher. She had time off during the school holidays. And there will always be that one day when we would go to a particular McDonald's. It was for those of you who know Singapore, it's at the East Coast Park. And it was just such a special time. You know, it's I don't eat McDonald's every day. 
But there was just this delight that I felt as a child and the little toy that was in that box. Mm -hmm. It just gave me a taste of how an international brand, you know, kind of has that reach and and that influence and also that kind of emotional resonance uh, with me as a child. Absolutely. Who's been the most inspiring person in your life? Gosh, I would say that would be uh, my nanny. Mm. Very few people know this, uh, but because I had two working parents, I needed caregiving uh, as a toddler. And I had a wonderful, wonderful nanny who took care of me and my brother. And what I remember most about her is her kindness. It's her kindness. And I think that that has made its way, I I hope my friends would tell me that, that I think this empathy and this this thread of kindness is important, no matter where you are and what role you take in, in a professional setting. Kindness will always be returned. And I I try to hold myself up to that as a leader. That's a beautiful thought in which to end this lovely dialogue. But I will give you one chance to ask me a question because I've been throwing you a lot of good ones over the last hour. So as a client of yours, what would you like to ask me or as a fellow CMO? Yes. I would love to know in your time at Procter & Gamble, which Mm -hmm. I always held up as a gold standard, what would you tell a new school marketer that you would want that person to continue to hone and build and nurture? Wow, uh, that's a that's a big one. Uh, by the way, PNG, as you know, has a ma- massive presence in Singapore. Yes, and I've I've been there many times, and I've always loved my trips to Singapore. I have fabulous memories of it. I think if, if it's a question about a, a young marketer entering the the profession, yes. Well, the first one is join a company where you can learn. And that's so fundamental at any point in your career, but especially when you're entering. So the reason I think I am, a reason I am the person I am today, one of the reasons is that I joined P&G when I was young and there was no doubt they invested in me. They believed in me. They, they saw potential in me and, and the, the mentorship, the training, the on-the-job experience, the special programs, the experiences they sent me to do that I didn't think I could do. So so I was always learning, and that's why I stayed there 25 years. So that's very powerful. If you're at a firm where you don't think that you are developing, that you're learning and you're being stretched, something has to change, right? Because I think every person deserves to be in a place where they feel that they are advancing. So that's the most fundamental. And, and of course, you should join a place where you believe in the ethics yep. and the values and the purpose and that it has, it has relevance for you. So I think those are the two biggest things. Uh, can you learn and is it a place that aligns with your values? And I think uh, for any young person, that's if, you, if those two things are true, good things are going to happen. Fantastic. What an honor for me to spend some time with you. Oh, thank you, Lynn. And thanks for, to you and your colleagues for all you do for us. You're welcome. I hope to see you in, in, in real life at some point. We'll plan on that. How's that? We'll take a hike together. Fantastic. That was my conversation with Lynn Teo. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. First one, wow, understand the business. As a CMO, if you don't understand the business construct, as Lynn calls it, how you make money and where does marketing fit into that, 
you will not be a successful CMO. She articulated this beautifully, and I loved how she talked about understand the full funnel, top of the funnel where we do a lot of campaigns, the bottom of the funnel, of course, but understand your role in the middle of the funnel when people really, really are, are there to be engaged. Second takeaway, build in time in your life to reflect and plan. Lynn spoke very honestly about how she did not do financial planning for her life early enough, and she has made up for that. But the power of stopping to think about how you want to spend your time, what your goals in life are, this obviously changes throughout your life, but have some sort of rituals where you step back and reflect about, about are you doing what you want to do to live the life you want to live today and into the future. And the last one, we hear this on this show a lot, but I want to say it again, the power and impact of being a great mentor. When I asked Lynn who has been the most inspiring person in her career, she quickly went to a woman named Debbie Newman, who she met when she was a young woman. To this day, they are meeting, they are sharing. Debbie continues to be very influential on Lynn Teo's life. That's the potential we all have as leaders to have that kind of impact. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.